You're listening to Flaunt, Find Your Sparkle and Create a Life You Love After Infidelity or Betrayal. Have you been betrayed by life, your body, or someone that you love? You're not alone. No matter what you've been through, Naked Self-Worth helps you regain confidence, joy, and enthusiasm so you can create a life you love and flourish. Tune in weekly and learn how. Hello and welcome to Flaunt. Find your sparkle and create a life you love after infidelity or betrayal. I'm Laura Cheadle and today we have the amazing Dr. Bernie Siegel as our guest. Now, I'm sure you know him from the pretty groundbreaking book, Love, Medicine and Miracles. He's written a ton of other books that I highly recommend. He is a writer, obviously, and a retired pediatric surgeon. He writes on the relationship between the patient and the healing process. And when I talk about the relationship between the patient and the healing process, what I'm talking about is things like love, positivity, miracles. And before the show, we were just talking about how when he first started talking about that, so many people thought he was crazy and that none of that made a difference. We're going to talk about that today, but we're going to even take it a step deeper. And we're going to talk about the impact of things like betrayal trauma and how betrayal trauma unresolved can also create disease and a lack of well-being in the body and how we can prevent that and heal that through things like love and positivity and all of the things that um, Dr. Bernie Siegel has written about in the past. So with that, welcome to the show, Bernie. I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you. And the rest of the show is mine now. Absolutely. Say something, I think of other things and it's hard to keep them all in my head. But um, it's, you know, the thing I learned was from patients. Let's just say the first thing that started me off was a young woman is I was at a conference I thought was for doctors because it was run by a doctor to help cancer patients. So I thought, yeah, there'll be some cancer patients there, but it'll be room filled with doctor. 150 people show up. I'm the only doctor in the room. And that teaches you part of what you said about doctors. When you say, draw yourself, and I do all these things. I don't make them up. Draw yourself working as a doctor. The whole class of medical students drew themselves sitting behind a desk with a diploma on the wall. One put a patient in a wheelchair in the picture and he was handing her a tissue and one put equipment and no human beings at all in it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's the sickness of how we create doctors. And it's hard to get medical schools to respond to my emails or letters saying, I mean, I would do this if I were in a medical school and say, here, fill out the application. But in addition, add a drawing of yourself working as a doctor and send it with your application. You know, because if it's an empty drawing, we're not accepting him. He's not taking care of people. And if they showed patients, okay, fine. Like the young man who drew, he was handing her a tissue in a wheelchair. You know, I mean... uh, Yeah, that was being a doctor. He's helping her. And the other thing people have to realize, part of what you said, emotions create body chemistry. Yes. So your likelihood to develop an illness, well, Monday morning, we have more heart, stroke, suicides, and illnesses. 
You don't like your life and your work. You see, and this is what I began to learn. This is the most important concept. You get well when you're not supposed to. What does a doctor do? Oh, you're so lucky you had a spontaneous remission. That's so stupid. Why don't you say to the patient, how come you didn't die when you were supposed to? What did you do? That's <laughs> what I learned. You know, I began meeting people. I mean, I never gave people a day you're going to die kind of thing, you know, because that killed them. Right. Uh, one man with cataracts, his insurance company said, we're not going to pay for cataract surgery. You have lung cancer and you're not going to live very long. He went home and died in five days. Oh, my he gosh. Enjoy his life. He couldn't see, you know, and uh, I, I got the family to sue the insurance company because okay. it was, they killed him. But what, what I found was when people went home and chose the life they would enjoy in the last few months or whatever, a year later, they'd show up at one of my lectures. Yes. Oh, <laughs> you know, then they would always tell me a story about what they did to not die. It could be leaving troubles to God, moving to Colorado to die in the mountains, uh, closing your law office, playing a violin, buying a house on the ocean in Miami. Um, all of those things are real or even one was getting a dog. And those people, they became examples for others and for the hospital because the hospital expected them to die and they didn't. Yeah, and one doctor, I never forget this, in Sloan Kettering, I get a book by this doctor called Healing Lessons, Sidney Winower. And I thought, what's he sending to me? I don't know him, but I start reading it. And in it, of course, it said, I want to apologize to Dr. Siegel. So I immediately, I put the book down, I called him. Yeah. Apologizing for you, I haven't caused me any trouble because I didn't even finish the paragraph. He said, it says, I'm apologizing for what I used to think of him. Now that my wife has cancer, his book is with us every evening as we work on healing. Yes. Thank him, you know, but what made him thank me? Yeah, his wife. And, right. that's and let me give this word so people understand. It's becoming what I call a native. You're not a tourist. If you have cancer, you can talk to people about it. You know what I mean? Right. And in Solzhenitsyn's book, Cancer Ward, incredible, wonderful term. One of the men comes into the cancer ward and says to the other guys, the other patients, hey, I found this book in the medical library. It says here, there are cases of self-induced healing, not recovery through treatment, but actual healing, see? And it was as though self-induced healing fluttered out of the great open book like a rainbow-colored butterfly. And they all held up their foreheads and cheeks for its healing touch as it flew past. Only the gloomy potty of with an old, I forgot, uh, obstinate expression on his face croaked out I suppose for that you need to have a clear conscience wow and that was the part when I read that self-induced healing they yeah. and why a rainbow colored butterfly and that's that's the part that you have to remember is so meaningful right you know what it says 
to you symbolically is what he's trying to tell you. It's not spontaneous. It was self-induced. And so I learned to say to people, how come you didn't die when you were supposed to? And how powerful their minds were. Mm -hmm. And my patients were really called crazy at the hospital. But after a while, the doctors there realized, yeah, but it's fun taking care of his patients because they don't die when they're supposed to. So they may be crazy, but they're living. So yes. they became Siegel's crazy patients. And I would get a lot of phone calls from doctors to substantiate what I was saying about the power of the mind. Right. Because one call said, Bernie, I thought the radiation machine was broken. This lady's lying there with no reaction at all. Then I saw your name in the chart. So I thought, oh, it's a crazy patient. So he went in, he said, how come you don't react in any way? I get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. And that's what they did. Chemotherapy, radiation, even surgery. The nurses didn't yell at me. What are you yelling at me for? Your patients. I don't know what you've done to them, but they're refusing pain medication. I said, they're not hurting. What do you mean they're not hurting? You've cut them open. You know, so why aren't they accepting Medicaid? But they weren't hurting. Mm -hmm. I can even say to people, it's not such a big thing anymore, but like the COVID vaccine. Oh, I don't want that. I could have a reaction. I'm worried. I'm a... Yeah, when you go and get it, you'll have a reaction. Right. Yeah, I walk in, have all the shots and all the boosters and I go home. I don't have a reaction because thank you. You know, I accept it. My body's not in conflict. So prepare yourself for all your interactions and meetings and everything else. It yeah. makes a hell of a difference. Yeah. I love what you were saying about um, living a life that you love, living, you know, the fullest. Sometimes when you've got cancer or for a lot of the women my show who have been betrayed, it's so easy to get into that victim state, you know? Yeah, I want to, but I can't. I have cancer or yeah, but I want to, but I can't. My dirty, rotten husband cheated on me. Yeah, but I can't. I feel bad. Do you have any words of wisdom or advice for being able to make that jump to get out of your head and to start being a little more positive? Yes. My wife was a, a comedian, basically. Um, great sense of humor. And she really took over on stage with me because I realized what a benefit it was to people to listen to her and laugh for 20 minutes. Everybody looked healthy sitting up. And what was interesting on the way out when we were done, more people lined up to thank her than me because she mm -hmm. made them feel good. And I might give you a couple of, she had a list for the women. Well, one of the things she said to me that really got me and sharing things with women we're in the kitchen and I'm yelling about something and I'm a noisy guy. Well, we had five kids. You had to make noise to be heard. Yeah. Um, and I'm done yelling. She looks at me and says, you're so handsome when you're angry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> and I walk away smiling. I don't even remember what I was mad about, but that's the kind of person she was. And and do you have minutes for a few of our lines for women? Oh, please, yeah. yes. Because she would say, be on the stage, 
And, and let me say, when I use that sentence, I used to take her seat in the audience when she got up on the stage and did one-liners, you know, like a comedian. Yeah. But one night it was awkward to climb down. So I stayed on the stage. That's when humor impressed me. Watching the audience, everybody got younger, sat up straighter. You know, you could watch them changing and it made such a difference. But one of her things, she said, you know, the Cancer Society has warning signs and I have my warning signs. Your husband calls and says he'd like to have dinner out tonight. So you leave a sandwich on the front porch. You put (laughs) your bra on backwards and it fits better. You have your hair done and the dog growls and won't let you in the house. You call up the answering service. Nobody answers. You call up the missing persons bureau. They tell you to get lost. You call up suicide prevention. They put you on hold. You go to a psychiatrist and say, nobody pays attention to me. And he says, next patient, please. You go to a gypsum fortune teller. She offers you a refund. Um, I don't know. And the bird sitting outside your window is a vulture. I mean, oh. there may have been a few more that I, you know, they were in her head and not all in mine. But, you know, the audience would be roaring, you know, like instead of the Cancer Society's 10 warning signs, it was... Bobby Siegel's 10 warning signs. Right, know. right. But they went home with that in them and uh, it helped them to heal. Because in studies, when you had patients laugh for no reason every few hours throughout the day, at the end of a year, they had a better survival rate than the people who didn't laugh for no reason. Mm-hmm. Even when I started support groups, there were psychiatrists who would say to me, what are you nuts? What the hell difference does it make for somebody to sit in a group? It's cancer, you know? So they started groups to prove I'm wrong. They started support groups, but it was to show that it didn't matter. And of course, wow. at the end of the year, this one who did, you know, a group of women who didn't have meetings and a group who did. Who had better survival? The group who came to meetings. So he became one of my biggest supporters because he, he, you know, hey, you're right. You know, I didn't even believe in it. And look what happened. And so, yeah, the psychiatrists were more likely to support me than the regular physicians. Um, And if you look at paintings, I I always look up because they're around me. The doctors are sitting like this with dying patients. Oh, my God. Holding them. They're always thinking about how can I treat the disease? What about the person? Yeah. And I did, as you introduced me, a lot of children's surgery. And it makes all the difference in the world for the parents to be there and hold them and love them. Yeah. See, even the people that we're reading about who go around shooting others when they're, you know, 18, 20, whatever. They weren't loved. No. That's why they're doing it. You know, instead of passing a law that they can't buy a gun, pass a law that their parents have to raise them with love and be trained to do so and have to attend the classes and so forth and so on. So, yeah. And I I love that you went to love because you're right. All humans need love, humans need that positive interaction. And in a society that is very disjointed, where sometimes can people go to get the love when they're not in a good situation? Well, let me give you a statistic. First of all, Harvard students were asked, did your parents love you? 
And then all the students were looked up when they were in middle age after graduation. Those who said my parents loved me, 24% had suffered a major illness in the intervening years. Those who said my parents didn't love me, 98% had suffered a major illness. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't know it, but I had wonderful parents um, because I felt they were driving me crazy. You know, they had answers for everything and they never helped me. You know, I come home from school and say I had a horrible day. What would I hear? God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. It's like, Ma, did you hear what I said? <laughs> but I have to tell you, I used to talk to God. I'd shut the bedroom door, sit on the bed and say, God, my parents are no help. You know, and I would talk to God because I thought if somebody came in and said, who are you talking to? God, oh, you need a psychiatrist, you know. Then my father, no, oh, no, this was my mother also most of the time when I got home from school. Um, and I would say, Ma, I have to make a decision. There's some choices coming up at school. What should I do? Hmm. She'd say, do what makes you happy. I say, Ma, I need some guidance and help. Do what makes you happy. So it took me quite a while to figure out what makes me happy. You know, not just to be yeah. thinking, but what made me happy. Um, and then my father's father died of tuberculosis, leaving a wife and six children with nothing way back a long time ago. And what did I hear my father say one time? He was talking with somebody. One of the best things that happened to me was my father died when I was 12 years old. Wow. So I said to him, Dad, what the hell were you talking about? He said, it taught me what was important about life. Hmm. And we're all here to help other people get through life. And he was always giving to others. And I'm thankful that that gene's in me because I have helped people who lie to you and you lend them money and you never hear from them again. Right. But I don't hire a lawyer and I don't sit up at night cursing the guy. I, you know, it, it's that those genes from my father. If I made somebody else's life better, fine. What are you complaining about? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, while I'll send an email saying, buy a lottery ticket. If you win, we can split it. You know what I mean? That's my sense of humor, you know, because what I love also is if they keep in touch with me, then I've made a friend. Yeah. You know? That, yeah. But when they run away and hide, I really feel sorry for them because of what they're like and how they've grown up. Mm -hmm. Their life is a sad one. Mm -hmm. And then there are others where they become my best friends in the future years. Um, and we met, yeah, through a problem, but we became friends. Yeah. I like that sense of possibility, you know, that there's people out there and you can connect with them and you can meet them. And some people it goes deeper and some people it doesn't. And it's all okay. Because you're just remaining positive and you're remaining open and allowing to be filled with grace and possibility and wonderfulness. Yeah, another is that if you, I had a stage that I called burying. Um, because what I did, and most doctors do it, the suicide rate in doctors is higher than the general population. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we don't know what to do with our pain, you know, where to take it. 
And how did I label it the cover-up period? Um, yeah, I was having problems. I would paint portraits. I'm a painter. It's part of why I became a surgeon to use my hands because I didn't know how to earn a living as a painter. Ah. I mean, I had no idea. I was just, I'm sure Vincent Van Gogh, part of him is in me. I know that sounds crazy, but from the time I was a kid, I was drawing pictures. Wow. And I loved it. And the house is filled with paintings and everything. But well, I'll tell you why it happened, because you, you'll laugh. I came home, what I would do is come home from the hospital with all my emotions and pick out one of our pets or children to paint a portrait. Because I knew after an hour or so of painting, I felt good again. I'm human. Yeah. And so one day when I'm driving up the driveway, every pet, and our, our house was a zoo. Some of my books describe it. Every pet and child was running away from the house. I thought, oh my God, what happened? Is there a fire in the house? What happened? Why are you running? We don't want to pose for you. <laughs> I never forget that little high pitched voice. We don't want to pose for you. That's funny. Sitting still all night. <laughs> That's funny. All right, all right. I'll paint a, a self portrait. I'll put a mirror up and paint myself. Right. Everybody turned around and went back in the house. I can ask. It was a herd. It was a mob. That's and funny. I put a mirror up and I painted myself. And you wouldn't know who it is. Why? Because I had the cap, mask, and the gown from the operating room. Oh, wow. And I labeled the painting the high priest, which I, I never understood until recently. Now, there's a painting of my wife who died a few years ago. I was trying to paint her in an evening gown, you know, gorgeous. And I didn't like the painting. And then suddenly I was outside. She came home from a bike ride and jumped off her bike. And I said, oh, that's you. Yeah. And I painted her standing with her bike in about three days. And it's wow. beautiful in the living room. But I had no trouble painting myself all hidden. Yeah. Then I read Jung again. He said, the reason monks shave their head is to uncover their spirituality. It's a symbol. And when I read that, I thought, oh my God, that's why I shaved my head, which I had done in the 1970s when it was totally inappropriate. Wow. Everybody else had long hair. Um, and it told me why I called it the high priest, because it was about spirituality yeah. and other things. So I, I didn't get upset about the name of the painting anymore. Um, but all that's going on within us. Yes. And Elizabeth Hoover Ross, who was a friend, she would always yell at me, Barney, there are no coincidences. Because, you know, every time something would happen, that was her answer. Right. As Jung said, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance. So that was Elizabeth's way of saying it very simply. There are no coincidences. And you begin to realize you're creating your future. Mm -hmm. And what happens, and it's not about blaming yourself, but it's all the things you're deciding to do that lead to what is happening. Yeah. I had one C in four years of college in creative writing. 
Interesting. An artist. Yeah. And I never expected to write a book. You know, I was out lecturing all the time, day and night, all around the world. And what, somebody came to me and said, you know, you could help more people if you wrote a book. I said, I'm not a writer. I don't know how to write a book. He said, well, maybe I can help you. And he gathered up people, you know, who could take my words, let's put it. Right. And, but I didn't know how to write it out. I mean it. Right. So I sat down with a tape recorder and just like I'm talking to you, I didn't stop talking for hours and hours and hours and hours. And then I handed them all the tapes and they wrote a book. Mm -hmm. You know, I could edit it and my wife could edit it and say, honey, that didn't sound like you what they wrote. So right. make it me. And it, it was fine. Um, but what I realized, too, let me say, <clears throat> I have an angel. Met him in a meditation. His name is George. Oh, uh, I love it. I mean, he walked up to me because I thought I was going to meet Jesus or Moses or somebody. Uh, we were doing a meditation where you meet an inner guide. And this fellow walked up and he said, my name is George. And I was very disappointed. I wanted somebody, you know, with a reputation. Uh, but anyway, he became my friend. And I realized, and I mean this literally, he wrote my first book. See, I, he talks through me. Mm -hmm. So when I was talking for hours and hours, it was him. Yes me and all and he was talking and then they typed it up and I realized that in many ways when I was out lecturing because I'd make out a list of subjects to speak about and then I'd be on the stage realizing hey dumbbell you haven't covered these things in order you're not you know but after a while I realized forget it and then one night well, the first person who came up to me said, I've heard you before. That was better than usual. I said, I know, I agree with you. Because it wasn't, you know, intellectual. It was coming from my heart. And the second person said, there was a man standing in front of you. So I drew his picture for you. Oh, I love that. It was George. Yeah. yeah. And so from then on, I just left it to George. And I'll tell you, I was puzzled by his appearance, how he was dressed. Really? Why? I spoke at a Christian funeral. The mystic Alga Worrell came up to me after the funeral, said, Bernie, are you Jewish? I said, why are you asking? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral. No, there's a rabbi standing next to you. And it was Jewish. And then I, I am Jewish, you know, but still he was dressed basically like a hundred years ago in the sense of what his garments are and his prayer cap and everything. So they were not what we'd expect today. And that's what puzzled me. I mean, I knew he was dressed in a special way, but I didn't know why. But as soon as she said that, I realized, ah, now I understand. So he's been with me from the time of my birth. I mean, people, as I'm talking, can think I'm crazy, but no. Three and a half, I took a toy apart because there were men working in the house putting nails in their mouth. So I did that. And I aspirated them and was choking to death. And I left my body. I had a near-death experience when I was three and a half. I mean, I'm sure these are all things that made me who I am today. Exactly. I'm 
looking. See, I thought I was okay because suddenly I had no pain. I thought, oh, it must have come loose. Because hmm. you plan to breathe when you can't, when it's blocked, the pain of all your muscles sucking and nothing comes in. And then suddenly I had no pain. I thought, oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. Then, yeah. Well, you're not okay. There's your body. It's dying. And then the body was picked up and the pieces flew out. And years later, I realized that was my angel, George, doing a Heimlich maneuver. Exactly. Held the way he was picked up around the waist and, you know, everything. But what it made me realize also is you're not your body. I mean, you are your body. You know what I mean? Right. You're not your body when you leave it. You're your body when you're in it and it's working for you. But when you die, you're not your body anymore. Mm-mm. The way I used to talk about it was, the kid on the bed, the body on the bed. And I thought one day, why don't you say me? And I thought, because it's not me. It's just a body. Yeah. yeah. I was out of my body. So all those things that happened to me, and I can't say they were big events in the sense of my talking to people about them. You know, I'm three and a half years old. I go about saying, oh, I had a wonderful event. Let me tell you about, you know. Right. Nobody was interested in listening to a three and a half year old. Right. You know, mother thought I was nuts. She didn't want to hear all these crazy stories. And um, so I just stopped talking about it. But I did realize that I am not just a body. Right. You know, like the right. body is given to me to do things with. But how I handle it is up to me. Yeah. And that is so important, too, because the physicality, we're not that physical. We're not the disease. We're not the whatever. And we're also not the bad emotional experiences that happen to us. We can let all of that go and create something so much better. You can recreate yourself. One of the most important things people can do, it's amazing how it helps you, when you have a problem in your life, what I say to them is come up with a word, one word that best describes the problem you're having in your life. Wow. Do you have something you would think about? I don't want to get too personal if you don't want to. Yeah. It could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking like for this show, I think the number one problem that everybody has is betrayal. I was betrayed. And it's like their overarching problem of everything in their life. So when they come up with a word, and I'll give you two, failure and pressure. Yeah. I used the world is spinning around years ago. See, when they come up with it, I say, how does that word fit your life? Now, the woman who said failure said, well, my body failed. I have cancer. I said, that's not my question. And she said, oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. Oh, no. What's the pressure in your life? She's about to be admitted to the hospital. I asked her about her headache. She had migraine headaches. It was so severe. They didn't know what to do with her, so they're going to put her in the hospital. I said, um, what does it feel like? Pressure. What's the pressure in your life that you need to relieve? My marriage. 15 minutes later, the nurse came to me. She said, her headache's gone. She's going home to talk to her husband. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And oh, and in my life, as I 
mentioned, I've been flying around the world with my wife, speaking everywhere. It was fun in some ways. I decided I'm going to go to every state to see what the people are like. So if I get an invitation to Alaska, I'm going to Alaska, you know, and we went to 50 states. But one day I got up in the morning and I had vertigo. The room was spinning around. And I said, hey, dumbbell, do what you tell people to do. What's it like? Yep. Oh, it's spinning around. Yeah. It's because you're doing too many damn things, going too many places. You got to slow down, take care of yourself. Yep. And in a little time, all those symptoms disappeared. Yeah, it was amazing. Because I'd get up on stage and, you know, feel like the room was spinning around. Yeah. And, uh, so you could take a pill, you know, and try to treat it. But once I said, it's what you're doing. Look at your schedule. Yeah. All straightened out because I made decisions in a different way then. Yeah. No, that is so true because for, for so many of the women, you know, that I work with, they're angry and they're vengeful and they're, and then they create angry, vengeful feelings in their body. So then it's stomach aches and digestive issues and headache and fire and heat. And yeah. You know, women can speak up. I mean, the trouble is, yes, they become submissive because they care about people. See, when women are in the office, and what's the point of living? I have three children. Well, this one woman said, I have nine children. I can't die till they're all married and out of the house. <laughs> and I couldn't believe what happened in her case. The ninth kid was in the house for 20 years and then she moved out and her cancer came back oh my goodness as a doctor i thought holy shit how could you keep it under control for 20 years but it was the same cancer and she couldn't die because the kids are still home Mm -hmm. but then and women have better survival rates than men why because the men say I can't work. What's the point of living? Right. I don't make up these words. The no, people, I know. I love it. And I said, turn your head to the left. There's four good reasons. His wife and three kids are sitting there and he's saying, there's no point in living. I can't work. Now, I know he's doing it, you know, to help them. But still, yeah. What are they hearing? That you're not living for them. You're living to make money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then on the flip side too, it's, it's like, if you want to show someone or hurt someone, you can create that illness and make yourself die. I'll die and show you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it's crazy. One of my kids, uh, you'll enjoy again, my wife's sense of humor. We had three boys. I said, I want a girl to take care of me when I get old. She said, I am not going through pregnancy again. And I kept pestering her. She said, all right, I'll try one more time. She learned she was going to have twins. Mm. She said to me, there's two more boys. I'm not coming home from the hospital. (laughs) Thank God. The first one out was a girl, then a boy. The day after Christmas. But you talk about mind body. I knew every single time what day the five... I mean, well, the four pregnancies would end. And wow. when, they, because my wife was in like into numbers. So if 
I'm born on the 14th. She's born on the 9th. The first kid was born the 23rd, the same month as she was. Oh, wow. It was twice our wedding anniversary. 11 was 22. And the third one was the 11th month, the third day. And then it was around Christmas time. I didn't know when the hell they were going to be born. I'm trying to figure out numbers. And my wife said, I won't be in the hospital on Christmas. Yeah. I mean, she just said it in the living room one night. And I thought, oh, perfect. They were born the next day. And that added up to 11, also 12, 26. I love it. It was amazing how the numbers always popped up and gave different activities meaning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. was just an amazing person who did things peacefully and, and quietly. You know, when she died, when I mentioned married on the 11th, um, I found more dimes and pennies together. In oh, the, that's crazy. In emergency rooms, in shopping, you know, uh, markets. I would hear my friend George say, go to, Ed, to aisle three to check out. I go there and on the counter, there were three dimes and three pennies. Wow. And that's incredible. How they would remain there. You know, when the belt would have carried them away and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the whole family began to accept the craziness, um, you know, as real. Right. It started happening to them and in their homes and, you know, other signs. Right. Uh, it goes back to what you were saying. It's it's not a coincidence. It's yeah, not a coincidence. Die, but the consciousness doesn't. So that's what all these examples are about, communication and other things. Yeah. I want to go back. You said your mom would say, do what makes you happy. And then you talked about painting because that made you happy. And so many patients that you've worked with, when they figure out what makes them happy, they survive. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what makes you happy, though. And I didn't know your... Can you talk about that? That's why I do drawings. Say... I'd say, draw things that could make you happy. I mean, if you said, I, I want to move, but I don't know where to go. All right, draw all the possibilities. Ooh, it's, I like it. It would be on one page or different pages, because there are time sequences on the page, too. Uh, and numbers have meaning. Oh, uh, okay. Don't let me forget that. You see, my wife was born on 9-9, to make a long story short. My heart went crazy nine months after she died. I knew that was going to happen. That's what I was teaching people about your life and, you know, your parts of your body and everything else. Because when I found her dead in bed one morning, thinking I was going to wake her up, I felt like I really had an electric shock in my heart. Yeah. It was an incredible feeling. Nine months later, my heart rhythm goes nuts. I go to the emergency room and I'll make a long story short again. You walk in, put him in room nine. I said, oh, my wife is here. There's no room for you in the hospital yet. I said, there's no bed in the hospital? Right. We got it today. It was 819. So it added up to her birthday. Oh, my wristband. Here, here's your identification number for the hospital. The first number is an eight, which is a new beginning. Oh, I don't know if you knew that, but it has seven days in the week, but different days in the months. So seven is that unit 
and when you have the eighth is the new beginning. So it had an eight and then nine, nine, six, six, and three, three. Everything added up to nine again. That's and amazing. The staff got annoyed with me pointing out to them because every time something would come up, look, it adds up to nine. Yeah, we know, we know. Stop bothering us. <laughs> but you know, I really knew I was taken care of. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you, I'm going to be 90 in October. And I don't know whether I should die that birthday for my wife or not. We'll see what happens. Or, or maybe wait till 99 and get the double nine. Yeah, there. That would be more fun. Yeah, way more I'm fun. More about it, yeah. <laughs> so how you do you... Know, I have to say that she really... You know, people can say I'm crazy. I don't care. But her spirit shows up. I mean, our town has its own cemetery. It's a small town. Okay. So I would often go there to walk the dog who just died a couple of days ago. He went blind and deaf and we finally ended his life because he, he didn't, wasn't living being blind and deaf. And uh, so anyway, I would take him for walks at the cemetery and, you know, just talk to my wife there. Yeah. One day I go down there and I hear her say, would you stop coming here every day? There are nicer things you can do. You don't have to stop here in a cemetery every day. Right. Like, thank you. I won't feel guilty anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because she's not there. She's not in the cemetery. Yeah. She's not where I took the dog for a walk or what I did. I didn't have to. I still could send the word to her, but I didn't have to show up there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Do you have any last words to, that you could sum up to tell the people in the audience, you know, just to give them hope, to help them through difficult well, times? A good one that popped in. When you live in your heart, magic happens. Ooh, I love that. I said that. Um, and, but that's what I saw with patients. When you'd say, how come you didn't die when you were supposed to? They always had a story for me. I mean, one guy was a landscaper. Maybe it's the best way. He had cancer of the stomach. I took out a part of his stomach and the cancer and told him afterwards there was some cancer cells in your lymph nodes. So you ought to have chemotherapy. He said, you forgot something. What did I forget? It's springtime. I'm going to go home, make the world beautiful. So if I die, I leave a beautiful world. Wow. I always say, thank God it was springtime. You know, um, six years later, he never came back to the office. Okay. Six years later, the nurse hands me his chart. I said, he's dead. He's never been back. She said, Bernie, open the door to the examining room. I opened the door and there sat John. Hi, I have a hernia from lifting boulders in my landscape business. <laughs> well, we fixed his hernia, but okay. he, he literally became my therapist. Oh, and wow. the word hispoditis, H-I-S-B-O-D-E-D-U-S. It's about walking in nature and connecting with God. You know, it's like praying by walking mm. in nature. I love and, that. And that's what John told, taught me, the beauty of life. 
the colors. I mean, things that, you know, I might see, oh, that's just a little flower. What are you getting excited about? But when you were with John, it wasn't just a little flower. It was a beautiful, colorful flower. And literally, I can't take you outside here at my house. I began, I did a lot of jogging for a while. And if I'd see something pretty along the side of the road, I'd pluck it up and take it home and plant it on my property. I have 11 red maple trees that I kept pulling up at other people's homes when you'd see, you know, two or three inches coming out of the ground. Right. Oh, and something called the mimosa tree that has a beautiful blossoms and fragrance. Because I came out of the house in the morning when the air is cool and it smelled like somebody perfumed the whole house. And I realized it's the tree because the air stays down. So you're smelling all the blossoms. And I don't know what else I did, but all kinds of crazy things um, that are there. And when I look out in our front yard now, it's just, oh, it's not the same as when we moved here. I mean, <laughs> right. a room, everything's growing. Yeah. Yeah. Plus pets and everything. But it, it's being with nature. Yeah. One story to make you smile. One guy said, I'm going to Colorado to die in the mountains. It's so beautiful there. I said to the family, call me when he dies. I'll come to the funeral because I'm very close to him. He had about two months to live. A full year went by, no call. So I called the family to say, why do you ignore my feelings? I wanted to come to the funeral. Right. He answered the phone. And I never forget him saying, oh, it was so beautiful here. I forgot to die. I love that. That is so funny. Words. And it's no different with the lawyer who becomes a violinist. He got a job at an orchestra and is having a time. You see, it's I often cite Trump in that sense, too, because why do you become a lawyer? My parents wanted me to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a violinist. And I and I wrote a letter to USA Today when Trump was um you know, chosen as a Republican, I said, I want to tell people something. When they have to deal with Trump, to say, I love you to him. Yeah. That'll stop him. Yes. Fighting with you. He needs love. He wasn't loved. He was told, make money and, you know, be famous. Yes. Say, I love you. And I just wish Biden had done that when they were debating for the presidency, when Trump is, you know, interrupting him and saying things. And if Biden had said, Donald, I love you. Go ahead. Take the extra time. Yeah. That would have knocked him out. And let me tell you a true story and tell people to read my book, 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. Yes. Every day they get another message. Uh, And and I reread it. So I love finding what I wrote years ago because it's like I can't I don't remember, you know, every story. But we were in Cape Cod. And the traffic was terrible. The kid and a teenager in the car behind us who's driving, screaming, cursing, obscenities. And and it was like, it's my fault. I made all the traffic. I got out of the car because there was a cop on the corner. I said, tell him to be quiet. It's not my job. I couldn't believe the cop acting like that. You can't walk over to the car and say, kid, quiet down. You're cursing. 
you know, all the things you're saying. He refused. So I went over with our kids yelling, he could have a gun. Don't stop. Get in the car. I go over. His window was halfway down. And I said to him, I just want to tell you something. I love you. I'm sorry your parents don't. Yeah. Stop screaming, made a U-turn and drove away. And I hope went home and said to his parents, you don't love me and changed his life. Good. But the dramatic effect, I wasn't even thinking about it. I just said, I want you to know I love you. I'm sorry your parents don't. And I've done that on the streets. It's been less violent lately. But years ago, I did that quite frequently when people were screaming and cursing because you didn't know who had a gun. No. And people were always, it always worked. I'd say, I don't know what's happened in your life, but I want you to know I love you. Yeah. Always stopped yelling. And I got more thank yous from the people, you know, out shopping with me because they didn't know what's going to happen with this crazy person screaming and yelling. Right. Uh, Yeah. And let me say, I'd rather die saying I love you to somebody than say I hate you. Yeah. Yeah. And even if we don't actually approach somebody and say it, the power of the heart, thinking it, you know, beaming it to them, thinking, I, I love you. There, there's a lot of power in that as well, especially to the people who have, who have heard us. And people felt it in my office too. Yeah. A long time. I used to say to people, I need to hug you. And then I realized the first two words were I need. Oh, I I was the word hurt the person hurting. See, doctors commit suicide more than the general population. They don't know what to do with the pain. So I used to say, I need to hug you. And they would hug me. And after a while, I realized you're saying I need, not you need a hug. So I started apologizing to all the patients. And every one of them said, we know you needed it. You don't have to apologize. (laughs) Oh, you needed it. Yeah. That's powerful. And that's just love. I need love. You need love. We all need love. Thank you so much for sharing all of this love, all of this wisdom, all of these stories with our listeners. I know it's it's a weapon, love. So keep using it. Yeah, I know we all needed this. So thank you. And yes, 365 prescriptions for the soul. I will put the link to that in the show notes. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. And thank you, Bernie. It was an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to more. You're an easy person to talk to. Well, thank you. So are you. A lot of people interview you and aren't interviewing you. They're interviewing themselves. And and being a listener, well, Helen Keller, that's another thing people to read. I can go on forever. I mean, you're born blind, not born, but in three years, you're blind and deaf. Yes. Why don't you curse life and God? And you read her books. What an angel she is. You know, all the things she teaches us about life and loving. Yeah. So read Helen Keller's books, too. It's just amazing. I love that because, yeah, she didn't all of a sudden sink into the victim mode. She loved and connected and enjoyed it. It's it's simple. Like, it's so simple, but we make it so complicated. So I keep learning from people who have lost limbs, you know, have diseases. 
I asked him, how come you survived? Why didn't you die when you were supposed to? I mean, and they're always telling me about life and uh, all the things I've learned from it. Yeah. Too you know, and that's why I found sitting in a group, uh, well, the, the, the thing that changed me was a young woman. Let me give you her full quote and then we can stop if you want. She's, I said to her, why are you at this meeting? Because I went there to learn about helping cancer patients. And I was the only doctor there, which blew my mind. But anyway, she said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. Yes. That changed my whole life because I said, all right, I'm going back to the office and I'm going to start groups. But then you see, what's the shock? You send 100 letters to people with cancer from your own office saying, you want to live a longer, better life, come to a meeting. 12 women showed up. I couldn't believe it. Why weren't there 200 people there? Bring in your neighbors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah and, and our group became named after what my wife said. She said, boy, those are exceptional women. I said, all right, we'll call them exceptional cancer patients. So we became ECAP. Ooh, but, I like it. Yeah, and they taught us, they taught me what to teach others, you right. know, about surviving. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. learned. You know, they said, my question was always, how come you didn't die when you're supposed to? And everybody had a story. I, but I, I'm sorry, but it's so funny because it made me laugh. I had one letter from somebody in the group. Um, I bought a dog. I put it in a backyard wildlife habitat. I left more, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on about things she did. But then the problem was I didn't die. And now I'm so busy. I'm killing myself. Help. Where do I go from here? That's funny. Take a nap. <laughs> but I thought that was hysterical. So I, and this is what I would give homework to all your listeners. Love your body. I mean that. One last story. Yeah. Has polio as a child. Muscles waste away. She never liked her body. She's now dying of a neurological disease. She said to me, I don't want to die, you know, not liking myself and my body. So I'm going to lie down in front of a mirror naked and love my body. When I see her again, her disease is in remission. She said, I lay down naked and I start loving an inch at a time. My toes, you know, my feet, my ankles, her disease went into complete remission through her loving herself. So periodically, I do this. Think of it more often when I'm in bed at night. I fill my heart with love and I pump it out to all my organs, you know, all parts of the body. And I would tell everybody to do that. Send love to your body. Yes. That is so powerful. And I think my listeners need that so much because it's so easy to get into your head and think I'm wrong. My body's wrong. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not thin enough. And when you get tired of your body, then you can turn it off. And nobody in our family, my wife's parents, my parents uh, ever had any trouble dying. Yeah. You know, they would announce it. Um, My father I need to get out of here. My mother said, help me out of bed. I said, my eyes talk about his body. So yes, we yes. had a big party I've written about. You know, he 
I said, when do you want to die? Oh, Sunday afternoon. So we had a big party, invited everybody. He died laughing. And my father started laughing. I thought he was going to change his mind and say, let's do this again next week. It's too much fun. So I'll, I'll live another week. But <laughs> when the last guest was coming to the party came in, he took his last breath. But he looked so healthy when he died. It was incredible. And there wasn't a person in the room who had any fear. I mean, there were little kids, you know, his grandchildren. And they came to me, the doctor, and said, I always remember that little voice says, is that what dying is like? Yeah. party. And he looked wonderful. Yeah. Good. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. I could, I would love to listen to your stories all day, but we are sadly at time, but will you have an amazing rest of your week? Go outside and enjoy something. And until next time, always remember to flaunt exactly who you are because who you are is always more than enough. Wait a minute before you go on. I've got something for you that you are going to love. It's the Sparkle After Betrayal Recovery Guide, a downloadable guide that shows you exactly how to untangle yourself from the past, powerfully reclaim your sexy, and re-choreograph your future one step at a time. The best part? It's free. And downloading it gives you access to our monthly support calls as well. What are you waiting for? Break out of the pain and get your sparkle on today. Go to nakedselfworth.com. That's www.nakedselfworth.com and get your guide today. Tune in next time to Flaunt, Find Your Sparkle, and Create a Life You Love After Infidelity or Betrayal with radio host and live choreographer Laura Cheadle every Wednesday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Develop naked self-worth and reclaim your confidence, enthusiasm, and joy so you can create a life you love and embrace who you are today. Download your free Sparkle Through Betrayal Recovery Guide at NakedSelfWorth.com.